Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Getting children back into school is a global concern, but in India, that'll prove harder than it is elsewhere. Nearly half of students attend cheap private schools that during the pandemic have struggled far more than their state-run counterparts. And near-Earth orbit is an increasingly crowded place, populated more and more with retired and broken, well, space junk. We look into the latest effort to clean up Earth's celestial neighborhood and how to pay for it. But first... On this vote, the yeas are 218 and the nays are 212. Last night, America's House of Representatives voted nearly along party lines to press ahead with President Joe Biden's coronavirus relief bill. If our Republican colleagues decide to oppose this urgent and necessary legislation, we will have to move forward without them. The vote unlocked a special procedure called reconciliation that would allow the stimulus plan to pass the Senate with a simple majority, making the bill's passage possible with just Democratic votes. What were you saying? You'll get Republican support? I think we'll get some Republicans. Mr. Biden has said that he does want bipartisan support for his $1.9 trillion proposal, but that he would press ahead even without it. We have demonstrated in the last year that we can come together. Ten moderate Republicans had proposed their own plan of about $600 billion. I am hopeful that we can once again pass a sixth bipartisan COVID relief package. The final price tag isn't just a question of political will, but also one of what the American economy needs. And it's President Biden's first test of his stated goal to promote unity at a particularly perilous time. Over the course of the pandemic, America spent about $4 trillion supporting its economy. That's pressing nearly 20% of GDP before the crisis. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. The big question is how much to add to that support for the remainder of 2021. And so what is in Mr. Biden's plan as it stands now? Well, the total proposal from the White House is for $1.9 trillion of new spending. So almost half as much again as what's been spent already. And actually the biggest item in that is for these nearly universal checks that go to most Americans the Biden proposal would send another $1,400 to most Americans, and that would top up the $600 they received as a result of the last stimulus bill in December. 
to make a total of $2,000, which was a number that was popularised by President Trump, that Democrats then seized on. So that's the biggest item. But there's lots of other stuff in there as well. There's $350 billion for state and local governments. There's money for vaccines, testing. There's some money to help schools reopen. And there's a programme in there to fight child poverty by increasing America's child tax credit, a near universal handout for families with children. And Republicans have have made a counteroffer on the order of of $600 billion. What's missing from that? Well, they would tone down the checks, as they're called, the universal handouts, make them much more means-tested. Their plan doesn't include any new money for state and local governments. The Republicans have always said that Democrats just want to use the federal government to bail out states who are spending too much. So they don't include that money, and that's quite a big chunk. And then they've trimmed in some other areas as well, but they do still have the same amount for vaccines, testing, and healthcare. And all of this discussion is going on just a few months after the the most recent round of economic aid. I mean, is it already really necessary? So what I do is I divide it into two buckets. There's one set of things which is essentially like disaster relief spending. The unemployment insurance extension, for instance, is replacing the lost incomes of workers who have been turfed out of their jobs through no fault of their own and are in need. But then sometimes the debate about stimulus is framed as what does the economy need from a top-down perspective to sort of get GDP growing again? And that's why I think the debate is a little bit more confused. GDP is currently down because the hospitality sector, hotels, restaurants and entertainment venues and transportation are just not operating close to capacity because of social distancing. And it doesn't matter how much stimulus you pass, that's not going to change immediately So then the question is, how much stimulus does the economy need to recover once you can reopen? And that's quite hard to adjudicate because there's a lot of debate about how quickly you're going to see things rebound once the reopening happens because there's so much stimulus in the economy already. What are the downsides to to passing the the $1.9 trillion bill if that number is, as you say, too big? So that's the big question at the moment. A lot of people think that the economic era has shifted in a way that makes debt free, that makes borrowing free because interest rates are so low. And of course, to a point that is true. I think the danger is that if you do more and more stimulus, that you won't overheat the economy now because so much of it's shut down. But when the economy reopens... There may be lots of pent-up demand out there. So the cost is that you might get a burst of inflation later when the stimulus is, if you like, unleashed fully. That said, we have undershot our inflation targets for a long time. The American economy could certainly deal with a one-off burst of inflation. But perhaps the way to look at it is the White House, Joe Biden, they want to spend on other things as well as this bill. They also want to spend on infrastructure, which could be a bill running into the trillions of dollars too. So you may want to hold some of your firepower back in reserve for infrastructure or other priorities. And so if that number is simply too big, then then to think of it in that top-down way, what do you think a good number would be? So I think it's very difficult to come up with a good number from the top-down perspective because of the uncertainty. So to give you an idea of the scale here, the Congressional Budget Office, which is America's official congressional forecaster, just projected that the shortfall in America's GDP from its potential at the end of next year will be about 1.3%. The Biden proposal for 1.9 trillion is six times that gap. So it's really massively overshooting. 
So I think the right way to determine how much to spend is just to look at it at disaster relief from a bottom-up perspective, go line by line and say what is necessary. I think the unemployment insurance boost is definitely necessary. The vaccine spending was obviously very high return. But when you start getting into the very generous checks, I think the case is weaker And that also goes for the money for state and local governments. At the start of the crisis, there was a lot of concern that state and local governments in America would lose a lot of tax revenue as a result of the economy shutting down. But in actual fact, they've done a lot better than expected. So their budgets have held up. So I think the right way to look at it would be that you should do what is necessary for as long as the pandemic persists. And you'd probably get some close to a trillion dollars And then later, if the economy needs more widespread stimulus because growth is disappointing, maybe then that's the time to do more. But at the moment, I think it's quite difficult to build the case for a full nearly $2 trillion. And certainly the Democrats are struggling to make that case. I mean, having said what you think would work, what do you actually think is going to happen? Well, that's quite difficult to judge at the moment. So there's this interesting trade-off. The Democrats, once per year, more or less, have the power to override or circumvent the Republican filibuster in the Senate so they can get through their plans, even if there's Republican opposition. So they have, if you like, a free hit, and they could use it on getting this $1.9 trillion proposal through. That said, it's not just Republicans that the White House has got to worry about. The moderate Democrats in the Senate may not support the full bill, so it would probably come down a bit anyway. I think $1.9 trillion is quite unlikely. But if they did compromise with the Republicans on a smaller number, they could save that free hit, if you like, for some other priority or indeed for passing more stimulus later, should it prove necessary. So I think it depends on the outcome of that political judgment at the White House. I think probably that they are sufficiently far away from the Republicans that they will use reconciliation. That's the procedure to get around the filibuster. So you will get a large stimulus. But I still think in the end, it's going to come down a little bit from the full 1.9 trillion. Henry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's 10 years since the Democrats last controlled America's Congress. A lot has changed. This week, Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics, takes a look at the new Congress, what's on the agenda, and who will influence how much of it gets done. Look for Checks and Balance every Friday from your preferred podcast purveyor. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In India, schools have begun to invite children back into classrooms. Teachers are still struggling to navigate local restrictions, but many schools may never reopen at all. Before the pandemic, nearly half of India's children were privately educated, one of the highest rates in the world. These aren't gilt-edged boarding schools. They host some of the country's poorest children. Students whose education is now threatened as those schools try to stay afloat. 
Indian parents worry a lot about the poor quality of their country's schools. Mark Johnson is The Economist's education correspondent. So only about half of 10-year-olds can read and understand a simple story. The last time Indian children took part in international tests, they ranked almost last out of 70-odd countries. So many parents think their children can do better if they are privately educated. And unlike in the West, private education is not just for the well-off. Close to half of private schools in India charge less than $7 a month. So you find these outfits in slums, just like you find them in wealthy neighbourhoods. And are parents right to think that the private schooling is is better than what the, the government provides? Well, not always, no. So these schools do get better results, but that has a lot to do with the fact that private school parents tend to be more engaged with their children's education, tend to have somewhat more resources. So if you adjust for that, private schools don't perform very much better. What isn't in any doubt is that private schools are vastly more efficient than government ones. 80% of them charge fees lower than the per-pupil cost in a government school, and they're getting comparable results. Now, one reason for this is that public school teachers are extremely well paid by international comparison. Primary school teachers in India get something like eight times the country's GDP per capita, which is a lot more than you'd find in neighbouring countries, whereas salaries in private schools are decided by the market. And so what happened to all those private schools when they were forced to close in the spring lockdowns? Well, many of them have tried to provide online learning, but have found that children do not have access to devices or to the data connections that they need to take advantage of it. So where they've managed to deliver some schooling remotely, they found that parents are unable to pay during the pandemic, or indeed are unwilling to pay because remote learning is not what they originally signed up for. So these schools have put some or all of their teachers on unpaid leave, or in some cases made them redundant. I spoke to one principal of a slum school in Mumbai who said he'd only been able to keep four out of his 30 or so staff employed. Some of these schools have to pay rent on their school buildings, and some of them have been unable to find the cash, and that means they've closed for good. So if those private schools have been shutting down, have more students now been going to the public ones? Yes, a survey of rural children carried out in September did find a small shift in enrolment from private schools to government ones. So the risk is that this very inefficient public school system is going to have many more bodies to support at a time when money for education and for everything else is very short. But probably the bigger worry is that some parents might prefer to keep their kids out of education altogether rather than enrol them in a public institution which has a bad reputation or in a good one that they think is too far away from where they live. Well, if the government is going to have to pick up the slack in a sense either way, has it given any funding to those schools that are struggling? No, India can't afford to bail out private schools, even if that was politically feasible, which it's not. And there's a further problem in that because by law Indian private schools may not be run for profit, they're also struggling to gain access to preferential loans that are designed to help small businesses. Some people have some ideas of how the government could help out. Private schools in India are required to take a portion of children from the very lowest economic classes. In theory, they get refunded for that by the government, but a lot of the money comes very late if it turns up at all, and some school leaders would like to see the government start coughing up in advance at a time like this. And what about help that that isn't money if the state can't afford that anyway? 
Now, there are lots of people who hope that this crisis can encourage smarter thinking about how India should regulate and indeed you know, get the best out of its enormous non-state school sector. So just as one example, there's presently heaps of regulation related to opening schools, the size of school buildings, even the colour of school walls. But there's actually very little checks at the moment on the quality of their teaching. So, you know, a good idea would be to switch this around so that it becomes fairly easy to open a licensed school, but checks on quality become much more stringent. But that's not going to help those students right now. No. So problems in the private sector simply add to a long list of reasons why India's authorities really ought to speed up the return of in-person education, you know, with appropriate safety measures in place. I mean, quite apart from what we've discussed, there are very immediate concerns about children's welfare, given that, you know, scourges such as child labour and child marriage were already widespread in India even before this crisis. Now, if you add to all that this idea that drawn-out closures risk doing damage to the fabric of the education system itself, a system that's going to have to work even harder to help children recover from this period, then that, that paints a pretty grim picture. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Humans have been sending stuff to space since the launch of Sputnik in 1957. Ever since, things have been slowly getting pretty crowded up there. Four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. And liftoff. Just this morning, SpaceX launched 60 more satellites. Already the company's fourth mission this year. Separation confirmed. There we heard the call out. We've got deployment of this batch of Starlink satellites. Much of what's knocking around in orbit is defunct, at risk of crashing into the functioning stuff and creating even more dangerous debris. But cleaning up space is both a scientific and an economic challenge. No one knows exactly how to get this kind of space junk out of orbit. Benjamin Sutherland writes about science and technology for The Economist. Most experts agree you have to start getting a certain number of those objects out of orbit, somehow cast them down into the atmosphere where they'll burn up in the intense friction. But this has been a growing problem for years already. I mean, there have been attempts to crack this, right? Well, there are a number of options being discussed. First thing to keep in mind is that most of these objects are tumbling. So you've got to design a spacecraft that can somehow grab this tumbling object without getting clobbered by it. And they're looking at ways of using nets. Nets are tricky. Airbus, not too long ago, did a test using a net to capture a small object, but that's one option that isn't looking too good. Another option, which was also tested by Airbus, is using a harpoon, but that's expensive. The harpoon can miss. It can ricochet. Even if it manages to puncture the object, you're quite likely going to be creating new bits of debris. And if something goes wrong and you do miss, well, you can't really reload the harpoon. So that's another problem. So if all of those present their own problems, then what's the next best guess? Well, there's a company based in Tokyo known as Astroscale, and they have put up a mission slated to launch in March. They are going to be testing an approach by bringing along a small pod they called a client. 
Basically, they're planning to capture it with an arm which will extend and will have a magnetic head. The pod has been designed so that it has a magnetic plate. In theory, you could put a magnetic plate on future launches to facilitate that type of retrieval. Now, in the first test that Astroscale will be doing, they're going to just push the pod out, and once it's about 10 meters away, the thrusters on the mothership are going to approach. The magnetic arm is going to stick out, and they're going to try and connect to the pod that way. The second test is going to be trickier because after it's ejected, they're going to spin up some reaction wheels inside the pod and put it into a slow tumble. And if that works, the final test is going to push the pod so far away, probably several kilometers away, that the computer vision on the mothership will have lost sight of it, and then it will begin a spiral movement pattern in order to try and find this thing, knowing just the general vicinity of space in which the object has been pushed. But beyond getting the technology to work, what about the costs of of putting it into practice? So it's a classic case of the tragedy of the commons. Most experts believe, therefore, you're going to have to have governments get involved to essentially coerce companies to pay for cleanup missions. One option being discussed is a sort of launch tax with money set aside for uh, cleanup missions. Another option would be a sort of bottle deposit system whereby in order to get a launch license, you have to pay a certain amount of money, which you recover once your spacecraft successfully deorbits after its mission. And if it fails to do so, any company that has the technology to go up and get it and deorbit it can do that and collect the bottle deposit, so to speak. Another possibility would be charging companies for the use of orbit, essentially kind of like telecoms pay for access to certain frequencies that they use for their mobile networks. But again, this is an inherently international, indeed global problem, that this will have to be coordinated transnationally, won't it, to avoid arbitrage, to to make it a genuine joint project? Well, that's one of the biggest problems, Jason. It's not just how much all this will cost. You would have to have all countries from which spacecraft are launched get on board. And there are plenty of experts who say that that's quite unlikely that you're going to get China and Russia on board and possibly some other countries would resist being forced to participate in one of those schemes. Thanks very much for your time, Benjamin. Thank you, Jason. I've enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.